This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, bringing you inspiring role models and tactics and strategies for personal success. New episodes of Women at Work now premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. Lately, everyone is talking about the great resignation, but today's guest says we should all be calling it the great aspiration, since many people aren't just quitting. They're trying new things and following their passions more than ever. Whether this includes you or you simply want to know how to help yourself and your team successfully take on new and ambitious challenges, today's guest will be right on time. Whitney Johnson is CEO of the talent development company Disruption Advisors and one of the 50 leading business thinkers in the world is named by Thinkers 50. She's here to talk about her new book, Smart Growth, How to Grow Your People to Grow Your Company. Whitney, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you, Laura. I am very happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I have to say, I think it's right on time for me personally as well. But I want to tell our audience a little bit about you first. Is that okay? Yep. So Whitney's worked at Fortune 100 companies and as an award-winning equity analyst on Wall Street. She co-founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund with the amazing late Clayton Christensen of Harvard Business School and has coached alongside the renowned Marshall Goldsmith. She teaches the S-curve of learning to managers and companies as both a keynote speaker and a frequent lecturer for Harvard Business School's corporate learning. A frequent contributor to HBR and MIT Sloan Management Review, Whitney's the author of several top-selling books, including Disrupt Yourself and Build an A-Team. She's also the host of the popular Disrupt Yourself podcast and our guest today. So Whitney, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about all this amazing stuff that you have to share with us. Let's do it. Okay. So before we dive into the book, which deserves some real attention, I want to know, how did you go from being a financial analyst to writing a book on learning and growth? This is not a usual trajectory. You know, Laura, you're right. It's not. And and because it happens so gradually, it feels like the most natural thing ever. But (laughs) I, I, I guess the way that it happened is as I was a financial analyst, I Um, was working and covering the emerging markets and uh, trying to make sense of the fact that wireless um, seemed to be disrupting wireline, although I wouldn't have called it that then. And (laughs) as I'm trying to figure that out, I read the book, The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen and realize, oh, this is what's happening. They're beating my numbers every quarter because wireless is in fact disrupting wireline. It doesn't matter that the sound quality isn't very good. Um, bad sound quality is better than no sound quality if you can't afford a landline. So people were willing to buy wireless phones. Hence the penetration was just uh, rapidly, rapidly growing. And so when I read the innovator's dilemma, it helped me understand what was, what was happening. But then the big shift came, which was as I'm reading this book and really studying this and understanding that this applies to products and services, I have this aha that disruption isn't just about products and services and companies and countries, it's about people. And so I, a few years later, when I had gone to a boss and said, Hey, I want to do something new. And they said, we like you right where you are. (laughs) 
I thought, hmm, I know about this thing called disruption. Maybe I'm going to disrupt myself. And that was the beginning of me. I left Wall Street to become an entrepreneur. I eventually connected with Clay Christensen and co-founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund, which was leveraging my experience as an equity analyst. But it wasn't too far of a stretch from there of, of really watching Clay and how Clay was talking about his ideas of disruption and me thinking, I think I want to talk about these ideas of disruption as they apply to people. And again, this took place over a course of about 15, well, it's now been 15, 17 years, but, but that's how it happened is discovering his work, applying it to me as an individual, and then starting to write and talk about it. And dare I say, could that also be described as you were kind of collecting new inputs that were changing your perspective? I think that's right. Um, I, I love how you, uh, everybody will know in a minute why Laura just used the word collecting. Um, but yeah, so so exploring these ideas and then getting that data of, I remember I wrote an article in Harvard Business Review back in 2012 called Disrupt Yourself and people responded to it. And that was the, really the beginning of me saying, I think I want to go out and, and no longer invest in stocks. I re really want to double down on investing in people. And so that was 10 years ago now. I love it. Um, another thing that I find interesting in this, because it's anchored at that moment where the idea of innovation being disruptive um, mm. also gave us a positive attachment to the word disruption. That's right. Um, and a kind of, a, and a useful word to recognize that we're going to change things. It's not going to feel stable and steady, but it's what's necessary to get to the next place. Um, how did you emotionally go through the process of learning that this kind of change could be challenging, uncomfortable, but ultimately bring you to a new exciting place when it was at that time about your own career? You know, it's an interesting question, Laura. I think, I don't know that at that point I was quite as aware of it as I am now, because you go back and you start to understand and make sense of an experience. But I do think that, you know, as I saw this playing out over and over and over again of this idea of, um, you know, the telephone disrupted the telegraph and the automobile, the horse and buggy, and just seeing that this was a pattern that played out over and over again. And when I thought about the idea of disruption, mm -hmm. and I looked at Lady Gaga as a great example of personal disruption, because she's done that over and over again, I, I had this understanding that with personal disruption, you're not only the upstart, you're also the incumbent. You're, 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 because you're, you're the silly little thing and you're, you're, you're the Goliath, you're the David and the Goliath. And so by definition, you were going to have to step back from who you are to slingshot forward. And this understanding that I'm going to have to break open and break apart and, and step back from where I am, if I want to move things forward. And so it was still perhaps not quite uh, something ineffable at that point, mm -hmm. but there was an instinct around it. Yeah, clearly. Um, and I'm glad you followed that instinct. So what I want to do is um, I want to start by talking about what the S curve is. Yep. This is a way that you frame 
what many of us, I think, casually refer to or um, without thinking about it deeply, the learning curve. But you give the learning curve a very specific shape and help us under use it as a way to understand the process. Yeah. And then and I think by talking about that and then a whole bunch of other questions I have, um, we're also going to explain more about why this disruption is such a positive thing. And it's within our power to generate it and succeed in it. Yeah. Oh, I, I love how you, uh, Laura, I love how you talk. Um, all right. <laughs> so, you. so yeah. So what I would say is, um, so back to the, I'm investing with Clayton and we're using disruption. And then there's this other framework that we're using called the S curve. And the S curve is something that's been around for decades. It was popularized by Everett Rogers, the sociologist, and he used it to figure out how groups change over time and how um, ideas are adopted. And he initially applied it to corn of, there was this hybrid corn and it's, it's new, it, it is easier to harvest, it's more drought resistant, it's a 20% higher yield. And yet it took five years for 10% of the farmers in the state of Iowa to adopt it. But once 10% of those people adopted it, then over the next three years, the number of farmers went from 10% to 40% penetration of the farmers. And so it moved in that S shaped. And so he looked at this and said, this helps us understand how people are going to adopt ideas. Well, we're using this at the Disruptive Innovation Fund to help us think about, well, how quickly will an innovation be adopted? And therefore, when should we invest or not? Or if it's reached saturation, maybe we should, should short the stock. Well, I'm sure you're now noticing a pattern. If I'm thinking about disruption applying to people, it's not too much of a stretch for me to say, can the S curve apply to people? And that was my big aha, that you could use the S curve to understand not how groups change, but how individuals change. That it's, it's basically a microcosm of the diffusion curve. This idea, the minute I opened the book and I started to think about the S-curve as it applies to learning and growth, it reminded me of when I started running, which I didn't start to do until I was in my early 40s. It seemed like something other people did I would never do, um, and it was hard, and getting started was hard, and then there became um, and it was a journey that I went on. I've described it to the listeners before, but it never crystallized for me that it really was absolutely an S-curve. And that there was a point where I used to look at it from afar and say, I'll never be able to run. Mm -hmm. And then I was starting to run, but I also wouldn't call myself a runner. I was, I was running, but I was not a runner. That seemed like some status I had not earned. But by the time I went through that whole process, I owned that I am a runner. Um, in the book, you talk about this, that it's not just like a little moment of celebration, like it was when I finally got to the point where I was um, felt comfortable using it, but actually would have been important for me to see myself earlier. Can you tell me why and what that relates to as we're embarking on learning experiences? Yeah. So let me, let me describe the S curve very quickly. And then I'll talk about that, that learning experience. So, so there are three major parts of the S curve. There's the launch point, there's a sweet spot, there's mastery. So the launch point is the base, the sweet spots, the steep part, and then the mastery is a flat part of the top. 
And so whenever you start something new, the experience that you're going to have, and this is what's going on in your brain is you're making predictions, many of which are inaccurate. So the dopamine is dropping and that's a chemical messenger of delight. So it feels bad. It just feels like this is not fun. I'm not good at this. This is discouraging. This is frustrating. So that's the launch point. It's not that growth isn't happening, but it's just very slow. We're not feeling the reward of it. Right. Exactly. Okay. Because the dopamine's dropping. So you're making progress. So every day that you were running, you were making progress, but it wasn't feeling you weren't getting the reward, but then the sweet spot, what happens is your predictions are increasingly accurate. And so you have the experience of dopamine upside surprises, emotional upside surprises. So your dopamine's now spiking. Your brain is wiring of like, yes, this is working. So you have the experience of exhilaration of like, okay, I may not be a runner yet. So at the launch point, you're like, I run, but you're definitely, your, your identity shift hasn't taken place. In the sweet spot, you might be saying, I am becoming a runner. But by the time you get to mastery, what's happened is your brain says, okay, I'm making these predictions. They're now pretty much accurate all the time. I am a runner. So that identity is shifted. Now to your question, what can you do at the launch point? Well, when you're at the launch point, you can use the power of your words to make that shift faster. So you can say, if you believe that you can believe that you can become a runner, so you might not believe it, but you right. believe that you could believe it, then you can start to use your words. And there's a wonderful example that I came across. His name is Marcus Whitney, great last name. And he, um, he wanted to become a computer programmer. He was working as a waiter 12 hours a day. Um, his family is living in a subsistence, um, efficiency hotel. He's got two young children. He's like, this life is not working. I'm barely making ends meet. I need to become a computer programmer. Well, he, there wasn't a lot of evidence that he could do that. Um, he was a waiter. He was an African-American male. And this is 20 years ago. People aren't looking at him and saying, yes, you look like a computer programmer, but his uncle had been a programmer and he thought, you know what? I think I can do this. And so he said that he used the power of his words. And instead of saying, I am becoming a programmer, he said, I am a programmer. And that fundamental, simple shift in his language made it so that he didn't say I'm a good programmer. I just am a programmer. And so to your question about one of the things that we can do at a launch point, if we believe that we can believe something is possible, if we will shift our language from I am becoming to I am a runner, then what happens is our subconscious, which does not know the difference between a truth and a lie, says, okay, I guess, Laura, you are a runner. And so it starts to put this motion, this machine of your body and your mind in motion to make the fact that you are a runner become true. It's so amazing how powerful kind of establishing that self-belief, the self-talk, the positive self-talk that's going to help us see ourselves as being successful on this journey can be. What are the other things that we should be doing for ourselves to emotionally prepare for what's ahead when we embark on a learning process. Because whether it's coding or running, there are going to be technical things we're going to learn. Mm -hmm. But there's a huge emotional arc that we go through in between. I'm, 
I'm a runner. I'm going to tell myself that now and finishing my first marathon. Um, How can we go into whether we're trying to finish the 5k, the run around the block or the marathon, whatever it is, how can we prepare our heads for the learning that has to take place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. I want to say one more thing about the, the, I am a runner versus I am becoming a runner. Um, and then I'll give you some other suggestions. So those words I am actually for anybody from a a Christian tradition or Judeo Christian tradition, the words I am are words for Jesus. And so they have in that tradition, a very, very powerful idea of creating. And, and if anybody doubts what I'm saying, I want you to say in your mind, I am stupid and see how you feel when you say that, or think about a child saying that, and then saying, I am smart. And you can feel a physical shift Mm -hmm. when you say that. And when you hear people that you love say that. So I think that's really important. Now, just wanted to punctuate the, the conversation with that. Now, in terms of emotionally preparing yourself, well, the very first thing that you can do is understand this model, this map of growth, the emotional arc of growth, because then what happens is you say to yourself, okay, I'm not very good at this right now. In fact, I'm lousy at it right now, but it doesn't mean that I won't be good at it. Maybe I never will be, but I just know that right now I'm at the launch point. And so I'm going to feel awkward and I'm going to feel uncomfortable and I'm going to feel gangly. And so you give yourself permission to be in that place. You give yourself permission, which is very important because then it's not your, your identity and your ego are off the table. It's just, you're doing this new thing. And of course you're uncomfortable. The second thing that you can do is to recognize that moving along a curve is a dopamine management exercise. I said it dropped at the launch point spikes in the sweet spot levels off in mastery. Well, there's a hack because at the launch point, if you say to yourself, I need more dopamine, well, what do you do? You set small, ridiculously small goals. So you look at either James Clear's work or Jeff and Jamie Downs, who wrote a book called streaking. So about winning streaks and you say, I'm going to set these really small goals. So for running, for example, Mm -hmm. we're talking about that. I'm not going to run 30 miles, 30 minutes a day. I'm not going to run 15 minutes a day run five minutes a day. That's actually how I started. Yeah. There you go. Exactly like that. And actually I did it for 30 seconds on and 30 seconds off. Yes. Right. And your brain said, I can do that. Mm -hmm. In fact, your brain probably said, even if it's 11 o'clock at night and I forgot to do it, I can put my tennis shoes on and do that for five minutes. So now what happens is if you actually end up running five minutes and 20 seconds, you beat your goal. So the dopamine, boop, it Big goes win, up. right? It goes up. So now you're getting all these dopamine because you're setting these small goals. And then the third element is you want to say what you're going to do to someone by when, meaning accountability partner. So for example, on your running, maybe you told someone you're going to do it. Maybe you posted it on social media. So now all of a sudden you've got this accountability built in. Mm-hmm which allows you to follow through on that goal. And so you understand that it's going to be difficult. That gives you permission to be bad at it. You set those small goals and then you say what you're going to do to someone by when, and you put that cocktail of things together and then use the power of your words. So that's your bonus that starts to build that momentum that helps you move off the launch point of the curve. 
So Whitney, it's so interesting how this is mapping onto this experience that I happened to stumble into, but I think it was because I had a very wise friend who had offered to coach me. The other thing, aside from these almost microscopic early goals, was that we did what's called what we referred to as chunking it out, mm-hmm. that we took the goal that I was trying to reach, which the first time was a four mile race and broke down my training into a a daily plan every day for three months so that I wasn't running four miles and I wasn't just start, I I knew how I was gonna get from 30 seconds to what was equivalent of 40 minutes of running. Um, And all I had to take on mentally was looking at the next day's run. Okay, I can go up to 45 seconds. Okay, I can go up to a mile and that was a big win that day. How is, how important is that to moving onto the S curve and getting to the point where we can really accelerate? Mm. I, it's very important. And, and the reason being is that our brain, if you think about this idea of neural pathways, we have these very thick neural pathways, these highway of this highway of habits or super highway of habits, comfortable routines. And so when we think about doing something new, it's actually more like a a cow path. And so if, when you're starting something new, you think I'm going to run four miles, your, your comfortable routine, super highway of habit says, you don't have time to run four miles. That's, that's not possible. But what you're doing by doing this chunking piece and these small goals is you're just saying, well, we're just going to go down one step on this cow path today. And your brain says, I can do that. And you're nothing seems to get disturbed. The, 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 the routines aren't disrupted in any way. And tomorrow, you know, I'm going to do another step. And, and before you know it, you've, you've crowded out the old with the new, but you did it so gradually there wasn't any resistance. So, okay. That makes a lot of sense. So part of what you know, when we're talking about whether it's running or I'm a computer programmer or I'm going to be a disruptor, those are choices that we're making because they're bringing us someplace that we really want to go. It's a um, a proactive way of learning. Um, However, life force, life work forces us to learn all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Not always when we're ready and not always in ways that we want to. Can the S curve still help us at those times? Absolutely. Yeah. Because, because it's a model for what growth looks like. And so what the way to think about it is let's go back to the pandemic, right? So here we are, we're on our pre pandemic S curve, whatever that is, whatever our life is. And we were all pushed off that curve, mm-hmm. all of us, every single one of us on the planet. And so now we're at the launch point of the new post-pandemic, or at least right now, pre-post-pandemic world, but we're in this pandemic and here we are. And so the question is, what do we do next? And whether we chose to be here or whether we were pushed here, it still helps us navigate that. It still helps us think about, okay, so I was pushed here. Here's what it looks like. Let me explore a little bit. Let me make the decision. Do I want to stay where I am or do I want to go to another S curve? But whether you were pushed or you chose to be here, you still get to choose what you do next. And this provides you with that map to think about what's next. Um, If you want to stay on this curve, find another curve. Do you want to collect the data, move up the curve into the sweet spot, et cetera. So it actually is useful regardless of how you got there. 
So um, there was one um, example from the book. I'm hoping if you can help explain, because this, it was um, a story of a woman who all of a sudden discovered that both of her parents were critically ill at just the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and if I remember correctly, she also had young children. Um, as a member of the sandwich generation, this is hard news to take on emotionally, but never mind practically. Mm -hmm. And it can be really overwhelming. But there was a way that the S curve related to the way that she coped with us. Can you help explain it? Because I think it's really inspiring when we think about how do we cope with the things that happen to us, not the, yeah. just the ones we choose. Exactly. It's a great, it's a great, um, a great story. So her name is Liz O'Donnell and she professional woman, like you said, young children, both of her parents are critically ill. And I talk about this in the context of autonomy. So so part of, um, so there's something called self-determination theory, where you feel the sense of competence and autonomy and relatedness. And that when all of those pieces are in place and you feel the sense of, I am in the sweet spot of my growth. Well, when this came up with her, her parents, she felt like her autonomy had been stripped from her. She didn't have the choices to make. She wasn't going to be able to live her life the way that she wanted to. And she said for a while, and I love that she was so honest. She said, I was very angry just resentful. This isn't fair. I was supposed to have these choices. And then she said something flipped for her and she said, okay, here's the situation I am in. I can either, I can choose to be bitter and angry, or I can say to myself, I get to be here with my parents at the end of their life, which am I going to choose? And when she made that choice, then her autonomy came back. So she didn't get to choose a lot of the S curves and that the situation, the S curve, but she did get to choose how she was going to approach it. She did get to choose the meaning that she was going to make of it. And oh, by the way, with the pandemic that happened to all of us, right? Am I going to be full of fear and succumb to despair? Or am I going to be full of hope? And optimism. And we all had to make that choice, every single one of us. And I, I love, and I, I have to say, I didn't engineer this, but I love that it comes back to what we started talking about at the beginning, which is our own self-talk and how we frame the challenge in front of us has everything to do with whether or not we have the emotional energy to undertake it. Well said. So in the first half, we were talking about, you know, how we emotionally prepare for the S-curve, this process that happens when we undertake growth of leading up to figuring out how we do something, the acceleration phase that leads to mastery. And um, you'd noted that we can choose to do it because there's something positive we want to learn. We undertake it sometimes because that's what life has put in front of us and we have to rise to the occasion. And it's not only that we can undertake it for ourselves. This is also, and I think this is really one of the big points of the book. It's a very powerful way to look at how we grow and develop our teams, especially those of us who are managers and leaders. So when I, for example, I have a team of 12 amazing staff members. They're at different stages of career. Some have been with us longer than others. Some are new hires. Um, and in fact, some of them, if we do our job well, We'll stay for two or three years and then we'll launch them onto something else. So as a manager, how can I think about helping my employees mm. think about the S-curve and undertake it in a way that's good for them and good for the organization? Mm. All right. So um, 
uh, one very simple way to do this is to um, draw out the S curve. So we have a tool and assessment you can use, but you can do this very basic, you know, kindergarten style of just draw up this S, explain what it is to them, the launch point, the sweet spot and mastery, and then ask them the question. So in your, in this current role, not just your domain expertise, but also everything that we've agreed that it takes for you to be successful in this role of not just you making it to the top of the mountain, but everybody else around you. We don't want Ted dead at the bottom, all of us up there. Where are you? Do you think you're at the launch point? Do you think you're in the sweet spot? Do you think you're in mastery? And then it becomes this artifact for you to have a conversation because they're going to tell you where they think they are. And you're going to then say, well, here's where I think you are now where it can be very useful is if they're at the launch point and you both agree they're at the launch point, then that means that they need support. Um, they may need training. They may, may need words of encouragement. They need, may need for it just to be okay that they're going to be awkward and know that they're struggling with, with confidence. Um, if they're on the sweet spot, then you're going to know that everything's just humming. And mm -hmm. that's the place where you want to make sure that you are telling them, thank you for the good work that they're doing, because it's easy to ignore them. They're not a problem child. So you don't want to make them one by ignoring them. <laughs> now in the mastery phase, this is an interesting place because you may, as a manager think, oh, they're, a, they're in the sweet spot. Cause they're just doing a fantastic job. But if they say to you, I actually think I'm in mastery and I'm a little bit bored. If you want them to leave. Great. <laughs> okay. But if you want them to stay, you need to know that. In fact, you want to catch it earlier because what's going to predict how long a person works for you. Is it where you think they are on the curve? Probably not. It's where they think they are. Right. Do they believe that there's still growth upside for them? And so when you understand what this looks like, then you can have a conversation with people and it can be a very practical, tactical conversation. And it also makes it for you as a manager to not feel personal. Let me give you a very specific example. We um, work with a company called Chatbooks and they um, turn Instagram photos into books. Great company to work for, uh, a CMO working for them for about seven years. We administered our S curve tool. And then she said, oh, that's what's happening. It's not that I don't like working here at Chatbooks. It's not that I don't like working for you, the CEO and founder of the company. I'm at the top of the curve mm -hmm. and I'm not growing and I'm not challenged. and I'm not getting dopamine. And so in this instance, there wasn't an opportunity for her to stay there. And it sounds like on your team, you have people for two or three years and you send them off. But because they were able to have that conversation, it didn't feel personal to the CEO. He didn't feel like, oh, she right. doesn't like me. It's just, she needs more dopamine. And so they were able to have her amicably go to another organization. She was amicably, amicably able to prepare someone to come up behind her to take her spot. And so now you've got an ambassador for the organization, a person who's going to continue to grow, who wants to see your company to grow. And oh, by the way, you've got now people who are coming up the curve who, because they're continuing to grow, are going to help the company grow. So how much of that moment of mastery and the need for the excitement of the next thing? Because I'm thinking of the dopamine, it's the excitement of the reward of learning, of growing, of gaining mastery. Um, when should we be looking at, if we want to retain that person, Yep. 
because of the well, there are certain people on my team that you know, like postdocs, who's like our collective goal is to launch them as the right. next brilliant assistant professor. There are also phenomenally talented people on my team that I'd like to retain and help grow for a long time. Yep. Are my only mechanisms that at that moment it's time for a promotion or a raise? Are there ways to help people stay excited about work by helping them learn new things? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think there's there's two answers to that. If you're having this conversation along the way, once someone's solidly in that sweet spot where they're just nailing it, you want to make sure you say to them, so what's your plan? Let's come up with a plan. Is your plan to go do something else? Because if you do, let's make sure we've got, you know, a succession plan in place, but I'd really like you to stay here. So let's understand what growth looks like for you. Is growth only a promotion or is growth contribution? Is growth helping train other people and bringing other people along? And there's a wonderful book and you probably would like to have her on your show. Her name is Julie Winkle Giuliani. She wrote a book called um, Promotions Are So Last Year or something like that, where she looks at eight different ways that you can help people grow that aren't necessarily around promotions. They might be around contribution, et cetera. And so if you can have that conversation and say, tell me how you want to grow. So I know you want to grow, but what does growth look like for you? And what other curves do you want to be on? Because maybe someone will say, you know, I, I need to do my, take care of my elderly parents. So if I can find a way to take care of them and feel like I'm contributing in a meaningful way here, then I'm growing as a person and I'm more likely to stay longer. So if you can say you're doing a great job, you're going to get to mastery. Let's have a plan, a succession plan for you. What does that look like? What does growth look like? How are you defining that? If they perceive that there is a growth opportunity for them, that's going to be a very strong predictor for how long they stay with you. So it's a collaborative process that we go through that's really custom tailored to meet that person where they are at that stage of their lives. That's right. So when I think about the hungry learners on my team and hopefully the ones that lots of other people either do or would like to employ, um, one of the things that I wonder about is how many S curves, and also for us as individuals, how many S curves, let's start with us as individuals and then as a team as a whole, can we, should we engage in at one time? Can we have concurrent learning curves? Yes, um, absolutely. Can yes. we get over ambitious? Yes, absolutely. So, so what do we know? We know from project management, and it sounds like you do a lot of project managing in your, in your department. We know that you can't really manage more than three to four projects at a time. We also know from the neuroscience perspective that you really can't hold two more than two to four ideas in your head at a time. So if you look at your, your um, job as a portfolio of S curves and your life is a portfolio of S curves, you say to yourself, all right, so what that means is I probably can do four curves at a time. And if you look at how to optimize for growth, what we found is a baseline is a standard bell curve distribution. So maybe you have two S curves in the sweet spot, one at the launch point and one in mastery. And so at work, you want to think about more three to four curves in your life. You want three to four curves. And so if you've just taken on this huge new assignment at work, this big job, and you may have a child that's two or four or six, you probably don't want to move. 
Right. That's a new S curve, right? And you probably want to have one area of your life that feels very stable to anchor you for the rest of your curves. And so if you use that as a starting point of, I probably can only do three or four at a time. Ideally, I'm going to have two in the sweet spot, one in mastery, one at the launch point that allows you if to start saying, oh, that's why I feel overwhelmed. So what do I need to adjust for that to do to adjust for it? So you noted as, as you were describing that, um, having two, four or six year olds, um, you might even have all three at once. Um, what about where we are at different ages and stages of our own lives? I think we all too often, and this is my new soapbox that I'm getting on is that, um, all too often people assume you don't learn after a certain age. Oh, Talk to me about S-curves for those of us who are well into our careers, but hungry to, eager to, or in need of continuing to learn. Okay. Well, first of all, that is a fallacy. Thank um, you. Our brains, um, I, uh, the very opening line of this book is growth is our default setting. Our brain, I'm, neural plasticity, the, the neuroscience tells us that our brains were made to make these connections. Our brains are made to make these neural pathways. So for us to make the statement that someone who is over 50 or 60 or 70 cannot continue to learn, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. Um, and so one of the things I think that we want to really focus on is how are we going to continue to grow? And I, I do think that we tend to stop growing, but that's because we choose to stop growing as we talked about, or maybe we didn't talk about this, but the older we get, the more we can insulate ourselves from ever doing anything new. Like as a child, you're forced into new situations all the time. But if you're 60 years old, you can orchestrate your life, choreograph your life. So you never do anything new ever. So your ability to learn, your ability to be on new S curves gets impaired because you stopped practicing. I, I, I heard this wonderful um, quote from Bob Proctor and he, he just passed away recently. Um, he was basically Tony Robbins, the, the generation previously. He's, he died at like 87, 88. And he said this, and I thought this was so powerful. He said, calm down, but don't slow down. That's Isn't interesting. That good. That, yes. Learn to be calmer, learn to be more mindful, learn to be more focused, learn to be more present, but do not slow down because that's when people get depressed. That's when they get discouraged. Right. That's when, so, so, you know, again, it sounds like we could both be on this soapbox together, <laughs> um, but I, we, we can continue to grow. And, and, and we must, if we want to stay alive. So when I think about, I look at my own parents, um, people my age, older, and like you said, like where all of a sudden certain challenges have gone away that let you settle into a life you worked hard to build, but you can become complacent. What's the role of stress in learning? Mm. When is it that um, maybe we're not in front of a curve because we're faced with a huge life challenge. Um, but do we want to invite a little stress? How does that help the learning process? Yeah. So there's some, there's some great research on this. And what I would say is if you think about stress, again, these three parts of the curve, the slow, the fast, the slow, when you're at the launch point, you, you usually have too much stress. <laughs> 
when you're in mastery, you don't have enough stress. There's not enough stress. And in this sweet spot, I, I call this the place of optimized tension where you do have enough stress. And there's some great research by uh, professor Terry Sanyowski out of, um, and San Diego. Oh, I can't remember the actual university. Anyway, Dr. Sanyowski. And he said, he talked about mice and this research that they did on mice. And then in order for those neural pathways to be created, they needed to acquire some stress. And so again, back to the pandemic, that's why it was a gift because it allowed all of us to acquire some stress allowed us to see that we're capable of more than we thought that we were. And so what we're going to do with this, but again, at the launch point, there's too much and the sweet spot it's optimized and mastery. There's not enough. And part of making that decision to learn and grow is making a decision to acquire some stress. Okay. So another place that can bring us great joy, but can also bring us a fair amount of stress is not in the skills that we develop, the tasks we undertake, um, but it's actually in relationships, <laughs> marriage, parenthood, yes. mm-hmm. no, no greater joy than having my daughter, but I will say, you know, it's hard. So can we look at the S curve as a way of navigating or making sense out of these big emotional endeavors in our lives? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a lot of different ways that you can use this. So the first way is to think about all the different stages of our children's lives of like when we first become a parent and we are at the launch point of the curve and we are so inept and so, oh my God, so clueless. Oh, I mean, just, and thrilled to be there, but inept. Um, and every different, yeah, I, didn't, I, I have to tell you what, Nate, I did not know why they allowed us out of the hospital with this newborn. Right. right. Like it seemed crazy. We didn't know what we were doing. We were elated, exhausted, but really clueless. No idea what we're doing and every stage, right. Of, of, of being, you know, a child, a, a baby and a toddler and going to school. And, and, and now I'm, I'm at the stage where our children are, we're, we're trying to figure out how do you be the parents of children who are becoming adults? So both of our children are college age, which is a whole new curve itself. Yes. Um, the thing about relationships, and we can talk more about children if you want, but the thing about relationships for there are going to be some relationships in our lives, like a boss that we have where you're at the launch point and then your mastery, and then you move on. But with those relationships that you care most about your partner, your spouse, your children, your parents, you want to stay in the sweet spot in perpetuity. And is so that the, possible? I think it is, but it takes a lot of work in order for us to do that. But if we, if with our, you're, you're staying in that sweet spot in perpetuity because you're continually finding ways to nurture that relationship and keep that relationship fresh so that you never outgrow each other. That's what it looks like in ideal state. So it, it, again, with a boss or there, there are going to be certain relationships that you do get to the top of the curve with a mentor, et cetera. But with those people who are closest to you, you want to figure out a way to stay in the sweet spot. Well, I wonder if it's that it by default, if we're engaged in relationship, we're, we're never going to achieve mastery because everybody's always evolving. So Ooh, it's an well ongoing process of learning about each other and how we adapt to and respond and interact with each other. Mm, I love how you said that. And what's what the, the thought that just came to me is if we say, say our growth is our default setting. And you think about these, these vines that are scaling, you know, the ivory mm-hmm. towers, you know, you're all growing together. So it you're, you're just continually going up. So 
one of the other things that I've felt as I've gone through multiple S curves, um, we just actually finished a great big conference that we ran on. And I was re as I was reading about that kind of the ascension stage and um, the power of stress to motivate you and organize you. Um, there's also those of us who went through it, super proud, had our moment of celebration. We're also tired. Um, how do we prevent and manage burnout? When we're engaging in what can be long processes of growth and learning, particularly challenging ones, or when the learning port, the S curve portfolio is packed kind of tight. Yeah. So I think, um, let, let's, let's start with the second question first, when it's packed really tightly, I think the mere fact of being able to say, okay, I actually am on too many S curves right now. The science is telling me I'm on too many S curves. That again, goes back to this. You're, you're able to increase your sense of self-efficacy because it's not mm -hmm. about you. It's about just basically what the brain can cognitively and emotionally handle. And so you give yourself permission to say, I need help. I, I, mm -hmm. I need to get support to do this, whether it's training, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a coach, whether it's, you know, whatever that might, might be. Um, the second thing that I would say is that if you, if you go back to this mountain climbing metaphor that we use of moving up that S curve of a mountain, you don't climb a mountain and never stop, right? You, you stop and you take breaks and you, you take a sip of water. And if you're running, you run and then you walk. And, and so part of this is to say to yourself, I need to rest. I need to take a break. And you're in a very interesting department. I'm going to share this quote with you because I think it really applies to, to the work that you're doing. So Tiffany Schlain, you may have heard of her. She wrote a book called 24-6. And she writes about um, the importance of taking a technology Shabbat. So one day a week, they completely unplug for technology. She's ethnically Jewish. Um, and so the, hence the Shabbat. But then she says this. She says, what if we thought of rest as technology? Because wow. the promise of technology is it will make our lives more efficient and more productive. And we now know whether you're running, whether you're taking breaks from your workday, if you will take a break, you will be more productive thereafter. Mm -hmm. And so if you're thinking about this idea of maybe we're getting burned out, not because we don't like what we're doing again, not because we don't like our boss, but maybe it's just because we need to rest. We need to figure out a, to do a better job of managing our energy and managing our time and caring for ourselves and learning how to do that, which by the way, self-care, huge S curve, because most of us are really bad at it. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> so it, maybe we should put that on our list as of, of the three to four projects that we keep, like the three to four things we're growing on. Maybe we should always keep one of them as self-care. So we can keep learning about it. And I particularly appreciate this idea of um, rest as technology. Um, to bring it full circle to the running metaphor, one of the things that my coach wisely taught me was that um, the operating rule uh, was that for every mile run in the race, that was how many days we had to take off from training following. 
So if it was a three mile race, we took three days off from running. If it was a 26 mile race, we took that many days off. And it was a very weird thing after the big, like I'm now runner, I ran a marathon to say, wait a second, I'm not running. I feel like a superhero. And I was taught if you don't want to injure yourself, if you want to recover fully, you want to be able to do this again, you have to build into your schedule time commensurate with how hard the training was. That's so perfect. Rest is technology. Yes. There you go. Boom. I had thought about it in my work life too, because it really, I think framing it that way, it's a tool for us to help us keep working. We can plug it into these systems, I think in a more purposeful way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Whitney, we've talked all about what I can learn to do, what everybody else can learn to do. Tell me how many S curves are you on right now? Oh, oh, that's a great question. Okay. So I'm on the S curve of being, um, a family member of, you know, a wife and a mother of two college age children. So just being a person in a family, I'm on the S curve of being a person. I'm on, um, an S curve at church where I do a lot of volunteer work. And then I'm on this massive S curve of building a business that I love to build. But then within that business, there are several S curves itself. So it's a fractal, right? So you can keep going and drilling down, but those, um, and then I guess I have some fun little mini S curves where I'm learning a little bit of Korean every day. Cause I'm obsessed with K dramas. That's because of the pandemic I'm learning. Um, so I have those little mini things as well. Those are, those are the hobby pieces. Um, It's exciting to hear all those dimensions, especially in the context of all we've been talking about. So for people who tell, since you are building a business, you have a book out, hopefully um, the people listening are as excited about these ideas as I am. Um, Where should people look for you if they want to learn more about these ideas or um, dare I say, even work with you? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think a great starting place is if you want to understand these ideas more, if you go to our podcast, disrupt yourself and listen to episode 252, we do a deep dive on thinking about your organization as a portfolio of S curves. So that's a great place to start. And that's free. Obviously you can go buy the book smart growth. Um, but I think those are the, the best two places to start. Okay. And if there are organizations, do you do organizational comp- consulting? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the bulk of the work that we do where people bring us in and they're saying, we need to grow our people as fast as we want to grow our organization. Can you help us figure out where we are in our growth? Can you help us optimize for growth? Can you help us context set for this massive change that we're about to do? Cause if we understand this S curve and what growth looks like, everybody will feel a little bit less frightened of the massive change we're about to undertake. Okay. So, um, where can people find you if they want to get involved in some of that? Oh, just email me at Whitney at WhitneyJohnson.com. Okay. Whitney, thank you so much for making the time for the delightful conversation and all you helped me learn today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Laura. This was a very fun conversation and you're, you're a great interviewer. Thank you. So good luck with all you're doing and I'll be staying tuned. 
And thank you all for listening today. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. Many thanks as always to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Chris Toots, Kara Pogue. We love knowing you're there behind us all the way. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, and don't forget to keep trying. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.